Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And Father, we just, Lord, humbly pause and, and ask, please help us. We want to continue now to worship as we sang and prayed we want to worship you now by submitting our hearts to the authority and truth of your word. And so, Lord, you know what it means for each and every one of us in this room this morning to be prepared to be able to worship you by submitting our hearts, our souls, and our minds to the very voice of you as the living God. Please speak to us, Lord. We want to hear what you would say to us, every intent and every reason behind your recording of this portion of the word of God we pray your Holy Spirit who gave it to us would now be our teacher and our interpreter and instructor. So you know what we're asking, Lord. Prepare us, give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive and speak to us now by your Spirit's ministry in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, research has shown that at one point or another, every person is going to have heart trouble. Now, I want you to know by saying that, I'm not talking about issues with the physical heart, a cardiac issue, but what I'm referring to by heart trouble is being troubled in your inward man. That is having a troubled heart, as Jesus mentions here in the first verse of our text this morning, a troubled heart, which may be marked by things like, for example, grief or deep sorrow, or sometimes a heart can be troubled in the sense of being worried or anxious or concerned about something or maybe a heart is troubled in the sense of just discouragement or depression well we're going to see in our text this morning that Jesus wants to help the person who's dealing with heart trouble or the person we might better say who has a troubled heart by liberating us from that struggle when it comes into our life on occasion. The backdrop, which is important to what we're going to look at this morning in Jesus' words, remember, as we've told you, this is now the last 24-hour window 
before Jesus is going to die upon the cross. So this is within the last hours of his earthly life and during a meal, which we saw in John chapter 13, that Jesus has shared with his disciples. He's just said to them some really difficult things amidst the dinner conversation. Uh, Jesus has told them uh, that among the 12 comrades that were close in fellowship and had spent three years together, that one among that 12 was actually going to betray him. He's also told Peter specifically that he was going to fail personally and deny Jesus before the day was even over. And to go one step further, he's also shared with the disciples who've traveled with him for three years and understand have become very, very dependent upon Jesus at this point in their life. I mean, I mean, when they had a problem, Jesus solved it. If they had a need, Jesus provided it. If they had difficulty, Jesus resolved it. He was a pretty handy guy to have around, if you understand. And they became pretty dependent upon Jesus. They had lived with him and been led by him for three years. And now Jesus has just told them that he's going to leave them and that where he's going, they can't come with him at this point. He said to them there in last time in our study, I shall only be with you a little while longer and where I'm going, you cannot come now. You can't come with me. So as you take the culmination of these things, there's a betrayer among them. Peter's going to fail and deny the Lord within a few hours. Jesus is going to, from their minds, abandon them and leave them as orphans and make them feel like that they have no longer his help and stability. It truly felt and seemed for the disciples in their understanding and perspective as if everything was just unraveling. It seemed like everything in their life was just falling apart at the seams. Perhaps you can relate to that experience in your life on occasion. The culmination of these difficult realities was bringing great genuine concern over their hearts. They were genuinely distressed. They were genuinely concerned and emotionally sort of rocked on the inside. And that's why Jesus then says, if you pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 14, that's the reason for his statement here, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. He says, believe also in me. So he's instructing them that he doesn't want them to have a troubled heart. He knows they have a troubled heart, but he's saying to them, I don't want you to struggle under that experience. That's not my will or intention for you to continue in that condition. So he also offers in verse one here and going onward some guidance how to overcome a troubled heart. But his statement initially is let not your heart be troubled. Now the language Jesus uses there in the original in the Greek of a troubled heart speaks of the conditions of a boat on a sea that has been very agitated and violently stirred up because of a really bad storm at sea. That's the picture here. A boat in the midst of a storm at sea, tossed all over the place, forced in different directions. It's extremely difficult to keep the thing under control. Now, that's a picture that Jesus is using, and it's a fitting picture of what can happen in a heart at times when it becomes troubled emotionally. When a person's heart becomes troubled, it feels like that everything within inside of them, their emotions, their thoughts, their feelings, that it's like an agitated, violent hurricane or storm at sea, and it feels like you can't even keep it under control sometimes. This is the picture that Jesus is painting here. Now, what's interesting, in verse 21, Jesus had said that he was troubled because he knew what was coming ahead of him as a man. 
Now here we see that the disciples are also troubled, but they're not troubled because they know what's happening. They're actually troubled because they don't know what's coming, which is very interesting. Jesus troubled because he knew what was coming. The disciples said they were now troubled, we can tell, because they don't know what's coming, which goes to show us that there are different things that can cause people's hearts to become troubled. Lots of different things. For example, sometimes people's hearts become very troubled because of a relationship problem. Maybe it's a marital issue or some family struggle or problem among relatives. Sometimes people's hearts become troubled because of a, a, a storm financially. And maybe because of some financial storm or crisis, they don't know what's coming. Or worse, maybe it's a financial crisis and they do know what's coming. Both can cause a troubled heart. Sometimes people's hearts are troubled because of maybe some health problem and the uncertainty of what's going to unfold because of this health issue. Maybe it's just very difficult circumstances they're having to endure. Maybe it's something that's troubling a person's heart in connection to some failure. And because of some great failure or mistake, their heart is very troubled now as the result of, oh my goodness, what is this going to translate into? And what does the future hold as a result of that? Or maybe it's the troubling heart condition of the fear of losing someone. Maybe there's someone who's about to pass or uh, someone who's maybe at the end stages of their life. And that can be a very troubling experience. Or maybe it's just like the disciples here, it's the uncertainty of the future. Maybe this morning you're not sure what's going to happen in the future and you're perhaps wondering, oh my goodness, I, I mean, how's it all going to work out? What's going to ultimately happen and how's it all going to come together? And, and that can begin to cause a person's heart to be troubled. All these things can cause a person's heart to be troubled and stirred up within. And if today you have a troubled heart, for whatever reason, Jesus' comforting word of counsel to you is let not your heart be troubled. When you look at what Jesus is saying there, he literally is saying, stop allowing your heart to be so troubled over this. Stop allowing it to. He's trying to say here, I don't want that to be your experience. He wants to calm and settle a troubled heart. So he instructs them and us as well. What do we do? What's the remedy for a troubled heart? Well, look what Jesus says. This is what he's going to discuss. He says there very simply in verse one, believe God. And trust also in me, he says. He says, this is the remedy. Make a choice, despite your thoughts and feelings inwardly, to put full reliance upon God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to work it all out. And to trust that the goodness of God and the love of Jesus, despite the hardships or the challenges or the uncertainties, that the power and purposes of God are going to prevail. And the Lord's going to work out his plan and his goodness for you in the midst of all of it. And it's through dependence upon him and trust in Jesus' lordship that we can be relieved from heart trouble. That our troubled heart can begin to begin to calm down and it can be settled again. Just like remember when Jesus was on the uh, storm walking over the waves and the water when the disciples were in a literal storm in the Gospels and Jesus comes walking on the water. The storm that was overwhelming their boat was under the feet of Jesus. And Jesus just said, peace, be still. And instantly everything went calm. And Jesus wants to do that to our hearts sometimes. And sometimes that experience comes as we just relinquish 
our trust in him and that releases us from the stress and the concerns we often experience when our hearts become genuinely troubled over things that are difficult in this life that we're dealing with and we're going through and perhaps this morning you're amidst a storm and Jesus would say to you trust me trust me just trust me rely upon me and his call to us is not figure it out get all the answers try and work it out his call to us is just trust me I got this. I've been running creation from day one. This is not the first time I've handled this. And, and a lot of times, that's what we have to remember. We serve a God that's rather well experienced. We don't serve a God who goes, by golly, I mean, I've done it before. But your situation, whoa. I mean, now that's a real mess there. I might need the whole angelic host to take care of that one. That's not the case. The Bible says... The God that we serve, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Are there things too hard for me? You better believe it. Too hard for you? Absolutely. But there's nothing too hard for the Lord. And when we realize this and we trust that, it becomes a remedy to help us. Psalm 37 says this, Trust the Lord, dwell in the land, feed on His faithfulness. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him. And he shall bring it to pass. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret. It only causes harm. That exhortation of Jesus, the first thing most important when our heart is troubled, just trust. Trust God. Trust the Lord. He then tries to indicate why he was leaving them and how that should actually encourage them because this is what they're concerned about. You're going to leave us? And, and he wants to say, listen, my leaving is actually for a good thing. Look what he says in verse 2. It should give you hope. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus speaks of how he is going to depart from being with them on the earth for a very purposeful reason. He's actually going to be returning back to heaven from whence he came to go back to the realm of eternity to prepare an eternal place for his followers. And then one day he says, I'm coming back to then bring you home to experience everything that I'm getting ready for you. Jesus describes, notice here, and illustrates heaven in these verses or the eternal realm by using interesting intimate family terms. Look how Jesus speaks of heaven. He says in verse 2 there, he calls it my father's house my father's house i mean think of jesus the creator of the heavens and the earth god incarnate god in the flesh the one who created the eternal dimension and all the glory of heaven and all the terms he could have used to describe it he's been there from eternity upon eternity forever and ever and all the acquaintance and familiarity and what jesus uses in his terms is he calls it my father's house Jesus uses terms that describe heaven's environment like what? Like a good, healthy home life. He says, it's like my father's house. This is, this is what I want you to know. Heaven, he says, it, it's like the most happy, perfect, wonderful family atmosphere. 
It's my father's house. It's a place where there's love and security and where a good and wonderful father invites us into his home life. And it's a great home life. It's the perfect home life where there's love and acceptance and security and peace and, and calm. And Jesus wants us not to be aware, take note, of the physical beauty of heaven, though it's beautiful physically. Instead, what he's concerned is that we be aware of the wonderful experience of loving, peaceful, joyful family life. He says, this is what it's going to be like. Uh, this is the amazing part of heaven's existence that Jesus wants us to be attracted by and to have hope over. He, speaking of heaven here, calling it his father's house, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. Now, the original King James, or if you have the new King James, that's what I used to teach from, uh, pull this idea here of mansions, the terminology, actually from the Latin Vulgate translation. This is one of those occasions where the term used in Greek probably better should be rendered many dwelling places rather than the terminology mansions. It speaks of lots of room to remain. Now listen, granted Jesus, we know earthly wise, <coughs> his trade was he was a carpenter. So I don't think you have to be concerned about your digs in heaven. Listen, I don't think it, well, no, no, I like mansions better. I, I don't think in any way you're going to be disappointed with the glorious existence that Jesus is preparing. In fact, if you read Revelation chapter 4 or chapter 21 and 22 in Revelation, it describes the incredible glory and the beauty of the heavenly existence. The jewels and the streets of gold and the precious metals and the brilliant colors and sounds and the glorious paradise condition that it's going to be. There will be no disappointment, I assure you. Yet Jesus' idea and what he's saying here is not, and I hate to disappoint you, a description of each person having their own magnificent, palatial, extravagant mansion to dwell in with lots of space and neighbors that you can't even find. That's not the description that he's giving here. What he's saying, the emphasis is more to be upon really the term many than mansions. It's, it's many dwelling places. It's a language that's speaking of, of that Jesus is making lots of room. He's trying to say there's a lot of space. There, there's plenty of room for many people to come and live together with him and live with his father to be close and intimate in the father's house. And he's saying there's plenty of room for everybody. And nobody's going to be any closer or any further from me and the father than anyone. There's plenty of room. There's lots of dwelling places and plenty of space. So everyone is welcome. And he says, if it were not so, if it wasn't just like this, he says, if this wasn't true, I would have told you. In other words, you can sense that Jesus is saying, trust me, wait till you see it. Wait till you experience, wait till you see what my father's house is like. Wait till you see how incredible it is. Everybody wants to come to my father's house. It's an incredible place. And the picture Jesus uses, the analogy of his language here in verse 2 and 3, the Jews, the ancient Jews particularly, would be very familiar with because it's a picture of how they would handle their marital customs. He says here, look at it in verse 2 and 3 in the text. He says there, verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may come and be also. So it's the analogy, the ancient Jewish analogy of how their marital customs work where a groom, after the engagement, would then depart for a time and he would go and he would typically prepare an addition on his father's house. 
And then when it was ready and prepared, he would then return back. He would culminate the marriage ceremony. And after he culminated the marriage ceremony, he would then take his bride back to go and live together with him and with his family. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here, this terminology as he describes this. He repeats a few phrases here that are very beautiful, the promises that are given particularly. Notice he repeats two times the statement in verse 2 and 3, I go to prepare a place for you. Take note of that word. Jesus says, I'm preparing something. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus' earthly life and all that it involved, and then his return back to heaven, to the eternal dimension, was intended to make preparation for us spiritually. So his sinless life, which we don't live, that he lived on our behalf to fulfill the righteous requirements of God, his death upon the cross in a substitution away as he died in our place, taking our punishment so that we don't have to be punished for our sin, his resurrection from the dead where he defeats the power of death, from being the end of all things, and then his ascension back to heaven to go back to heaven, all of those things were for specific reasons to go prepare a place ultimately that he may then come back and one day get us, pick up his bride, if you would, and bring us to be with him where he was at. Specifically, Jesus wants us to know he's preparing a spot, a place for us to come and be with him in heaven. Now that says something this morning. Particularly, it says this, Jesus wants you to be in heaven. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you have done or what you or anyone else thinks about you. Jesus wants you to be in heaven. He's made preparations and is particularly preparing with plenty of room. He loves you and he has made personal preparation for you to come be with him and with his father in heaven. Peter, writing of this in 1 Peter 1, says this as a promise to the Christian. He says, we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's a reservation, just like a dinner reservation. It's, it's held, it's kept for you. And the only thing, hear me, the only thing that would keep any human being from experiencing heaven and what Jesus has reserved and perfectly prepared everything for us. Only one thing would keep us, and that's this, is if we refuse to enter into the reservation. If we refuse to embrace Jesus and accept Jesus' proposal spiritually. Jesus says, listen, I love you. Will you enter into a relationship with me? Would you marry me per se spiritually so that you can come and dwell with me forever? And if we choose to say, you know what? No, I don't need your way. I'll find my own way. Religion is my way or I'm going to weigh all my good and bad or I'm not. It's too narrow. I'm, and Jesus is the only thing that would keep us. He's going to say later on is if we refuse his proposal. Jesus has prepared a place. He loves you. He wants you to be in heaven. He wants you to be in heaven but he allows us to decide whether or not we will accept him because he alone will see as the access point to be able to get there. So he says, I go to prepare a place. He also says here in verse three, notice it. He says, and I will come again. That's very important. Notice that Jesus promised that he would return once again and an unexpected day and an unexpected hour. And knowing Jesus is going to return is a very important thing for all people. 
for believers to hold on to that, to look forward to, and for the person who is not yet in right relationship with God to realize time is limited. And Jesus will come again. And the important thing is, will you be prepared when he comes? He says, I will come again. The reason going on, he says, there is to receive you to myself that where I am, where I've prepared for you in heaven and where I'm now at, he says that there you may be also. Jesus promises, and this is great for a troubled heart, that he is going to come and rescue and remove all of his followers who belong to him. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord who are following him, Jesus promised to us for the follower of Jesus to live in light of is that he is returning to pick us up to bring us to be with him where he is at. He's prepared the place for us to dwell with him and he will come again to draw us from this earth to bring us home to what he's prepared for us. The writer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul the Apostle, describes these events this way. 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain, living Christians shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We often refer to this as the catching away of the saints or the terminology rapture has become very common to many of us. The catching away of Jesus' followers. That Jesus at any moment, the harpazo is going to violently snatch, no, not violently in the sense of, get out of here, get out of here. Not that sense. Finally, i got to get you off. You've been hassling me for years. <laughs> but the idea is that instantaneously, instantaneously, believers will be yanked from this earth miraculously, instantaneously to meet the Lord in the air and thus we will go and always be with the Lord. And this is what Jesus is referring to as he says, I will come again to receive you to myself, those who belong to him. We will be caught away in a moment in the twinkling of an eye in an unknown and unexpected hour. We're to be continuously living in expectation of that. Titus 2 says that we are to be looking for this blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we are looking for that blessed hope and knowing that at any moment Jesus is going to catch us away to go be with him where he is at, that will inspire us if we live in light of that to be living holy lives, to be redeeming our time while on this earth because at any moment our Lord can return to call us home and we want to be living right. I don't want Jesus to show up and to, to call me home and, and my hands be involved in something they shouldn't be involved in or my life to be engaged in something it shouldn't be engaged in. I want the Lord to find me doing his business when he comes, my heart in a right place. I don't want to have regrets. I don't want to kind of shamefacedly show up. Oh my, I'm here. Thank you for the grace of God. I don't want to enter into the presence of the Lord. And I don't want to have regrets of lost opportunities that I was spending all my time chasing all these earthly things and doing this and that and, and never giving any time to the things of spiritual life for the kingdom of God and realize game over. Game over. What a waste, man. Why was I doing all this stuff and now game over? The opportunity is lost. And living in light of Jesus' soon return, an immediate return, imminent, helps us to live in a way that is right. And it also provides great comfort and help as we navigate through life's difficulties. 
that cause our hearts to be troubled. This awareness that Jesus is coming helps us to know that one day soon this will all end and all the struggles are going to cease. And one day soon Jesus is going to release us from this and we'll be going home. Perhaps today if your heart is troubled, Jesus would say to you, you hang in there. I'm getting things ready. And before you know it and before you realize it, I'm coming and I'm going to get you out of there. And I'm going to bring you to a place. And in my father's house, there's no more pain. And there's no sorrow. And there's no suffering. There's no sickness. There's no hurt or anything that would cause all the pain. And he says, the former things, they're going to pass away. So you hang in there. You hang in there. I'm getting things ready. I'm coming soon. And after telling his disciples he's going to prepare a place for them, verse 4, he then says, and where I go, you know, and the way... You know, So he assures them that they can't come with him now, but he is confident that they know the way to where he is going and will ultimately be with him. Well, verse 5, Thomas said to him in response, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, I don't know, but perhaps at this point, the rest of the disciples are trying to maybe appear a little bit spiritual in the midst of this conversation. Again, I, maybe I'm speculating here. Maybe they're listening to Jesus talk about his father's house and all these things, and they're kind of all just nodding their heads in agreement to his words, acting like they fully understand. And Thomas being a little bit more humble and, and wanting to not take any chances, make sure he got things right, rather than pretend spiritually, he chides in his sincerity and he says, Ah, Lord, to be quite frankly honest, we have no idea what you're talking about. This sounds important. <laughs> if I got to be the guy to look dumb, I'll ask the question. Lord, uh, quite honestly, can you clarify a bit more? Because if we don't know where you're going, how are we going to know the way to get there? Now, let me just say this. Aren't you glad Thomas was humble enough to ask a question? Because if you think of his humility in asking that question, look what it influenced Jesus to say. One of the most helpful statements spiritually we have. Verse 6, Jesus answered Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus makes another one of these seven I am statements in John's gospel revealing his deity or that he's God. And since they want to know how to enter into heaven, they want to know what's the way to the Father's house, to the presence of God, to the eternal realm in heaven, Jesus answers, you could not be more clear. He simply says, do you want to know the way to heaven? Here it is, four words. I am the way. I am the way. Now take note. Jesus did not say, I am a way. He didn't say that. Jesus said, I am the way. Way. It's in the emphatic, in the language. I am the only way. I am the way. The path is very clearly indicated that it is singular. There is a definite path and a road to be followed according to Jesus, both in this life and to get to heaven. The path is not a philosophy of your own ideas to live by or what the current ideas are in the world in order to get to heaven. It's not some set of religious practices, but notice it is a person to be trusted as the answer. That's the answer. The answer to the way in this life and to get to eternal life is that there is someone to be followed. Think of it. One of Jesus' favorite statements when he was living on the earth, you read it in the Gospels many times, when Jesus would call people into a commitment or relationship with him, he would say two words. He would say, follow me. 
He, he didn't per se say follow a church, follow a pastor, follow a priest, follow this set of ideological ideas, follow these doctrinal beliefs. Jesus would say, follow me. His call was always a commitment to him personally that we would follow him. Let us leaving whatever else was guiding them, whatever else they were following after, whatever else led their life and making a decision of total surrender and submission to the lordship of Jesus over their lives and saying, Lord, I've been following myself. I've been following this. I've been following that person. But Lord, I now realize I need to follow you. I need to follow you. And to let you lead me and let you guide me to become a follower of the person of Jesus in the way that I live or the way that I believe. So we could therefore say very clearly, Jesus is the way to earthly living. Right now, while we're living on this earth, think about it. Is it not true? Perhaps all of us or lots of people we know, oftentimes people spend a lot of time trying to do what? I'm trying to find my way. I'm trying to find my way, man. I'm just trying to find my way. Well, listen. That usually is a very vain, exhausting process, and you can spend extra time on it if you want. But a lot of times, trying to find their way, people chase this and try that and pursue this, and ultimately they end up what? Disappointed, disillusioned, dissatisfied, empty, and sadly, a lot of times with a lot of unnecessary regrets too, right? When the reality is, Jesus wants us to realize He is the way. He's the way. The way to live properly is to serve Jesus, is to live for Jesus, to let Jesus be Lord of your life and say, that's oh, that's the way. That's simple. The way is, whatever way Jesus is going, that's the way. Whatever way Jesus says, that's the way. The way is to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus. That's the way to live on earth. And Jesus is also not only the way to live on earth, but he's also the way to enter eternal life. This is what he's discussing specifically. Notice, Jesus did not say the way to the Father's house or the way to heaven. Again, he did not say the way into eternal life is through church. He did not say the way to enter eternal life is through confirmation. He did not say the way to enter eternal life is through baptism or good works or religious efforts or any of those things. Jesus said the way to heaven is found in him. In a person. I am the way. The way is in a person. It's in the person of Jesus. First Timothy 2 says this. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the ladder to heaven. Jesus is the access point. Jesus says I am the way. And then he says as well in verse 6 also. I am the truth. He claims to be the truth. Again Jesus didn't just speak the truth. He didn't just represent what was true. Jesus said he was the embodiment of truth because he was the true manifestation of God. He was the source of all truth. So technically Jesus is saying, I am the truth about God. I am the truth about life, about salvation. I'm the truth about eternity. I'm the truth about what is right and wrong and how to live and how to be saved. And again, everybody in this life is honestly, I think, looking for truth within. Quite frankly, I think people, especially in today's culture and generation, are sick and tired of all the lies in this present world. How many times lies and false promises have led so many of us to being disappointed and let down and frustrated again or being ripped off or left empty. You ever notice man's ideas and facts are always changing? 
Whether it's a politician says this and they do that. Whether it's we say, okay, well, this is scientific fact and then somehow scientific fact changes in the next set of books that come out. And so often, men's ideas and what they say in their statements, it's this today and then it's not that tomorrow. You never have to worry about that with Jesus because Jesus is the truth. He's the truth. He's fully reliable. He's completely dependable. And what he says is true. I think people are always, I just want to find the truth. I want to know what the truth is. It's in Jesus. If you come to Jesus, you'll finally have the truth and you'll be able to deal with all the lies and untruth that happen in this world because that's not going to change. But Jesus offers us himself as the truth. And how wonderful to have that utter reliability without ever changing. You can build your life, ladies and gentlemen, upon Jesus. I would not encourage you to build your life on anything else. Don't build your life on some political party. Don't build your life on a politician. Don't build your life on this ideology or that mentality or that system or this or that. Don't even build your life on other people. But you can build your life on Jesus. That is the one reliable individual who will never change. He will never fail you. He'll never let you down because he is the epitome of truth in every form and fashion. So he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. And then he says as well here, and I am the life. That is the source of spiritual life and the source of eternal life. Jesus claims himself to be that life. Now this is important and here understand why. Because in the same way that not one of us in this room began our own physical life. Someone else gave us life. We don't begin our own physical life. And the same applies spiritually. You can't begin your own spiritual life. You can't conceive spiritual life in yourself. The Bible teaches we are born spiritually dead. We're deficient of life spiritually. That's just what the Bible teaches. That's what God says. And so therefore, at some point, we need spiritual life to enter into us. We need to receive spiritual life. We can't begin our own spiritual life. We need to receive spiritual life just like we had to receive physical life from someone else. And that happens as we receive that life spiritually and eternally from Jesus. Because he is the eternal God. And so as we open our heart to Jesus, as Jesus comes in, as we receive Jesus, Jesus makes us come alive spiritually. And therefore, we can then have a relationship with God. That's why the Bible refers to it as spiritual birth or being born again, just like a a birth spiritually. It has to happen at some point. This is important to understand. As we open our heart to Jesus in faith, he imparts his own life into our life and we come alive spiritually to that dimension. We receive the gift of eternal life that Jesus gives. And again, please see this here. It's not obtained by what you do. In religious works you don't gradually acquire it by becoming more religious or spiritual it's not something that we receive from any other thing than receiving it from a person we receive it from the person of Jesus first John 5 says it this way listen it says this testimony is what God has given to us that he has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has life he who does not have the son of God does not have life God says, listen, I've given you eternal life. It's available. That eternal life, that spiritual life, it's in my son. So if you have Jesus in your life, you have spiritual and eternal life. If you don't yet have Jesus in your life, you may be getting close 
in trying to seek, but he says you don't yet have spiritual and eternal life. You need to get Jesus in your life. You need to open your life and say, Jesus, come into my life. Give me spiritual life. Give me eternal life and we receive it as a gift from him. Jesus, if that were not enough, he got extremely exclusive. He'd really offend a lot of the news reporters today. Look what he says, verse 6 at the end of it. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Boy, that is narrow. That's a clear and direct way of saying he is the exclusive doorway to enter into the presence of God. That the only way to enter into the presence of God, to enter into heaven, is if Jesus grants you access. That Jesus is the doorway. It's not what we know, it is who we know. So the question becomes, do you know Jesus in a personal way? Do you know Jesus? Now that statement, as I said, that's very narrow in what it allows for. And in our modern culture, let's be honest, to be narrow means you must be wrong, a bigot, or intolerant. That's the world that we live in. But listen, please, truth is always intolerant. Or it wouldn't be truth. Truth must be intolerant because if truth is intolerant in any way, or truth you know, can't exist without intolerance because truth, really, it's intolerant to lies. This is the whole point. If truth is genuinely true, then it must be intolerant to everything that's false. Or it's no longer true. True? But yet we have such a problem with this for some reason. And I would just say this in light of that. The issue when it comes to eternity, to heaven, to hell, these vitally important issues... Of all areas, the issue should not be what is broad or what is tolerant to everyone. The issue must be, what is the truth? What's the truth? And Jesus said, the truth is that no one can come to the Father in heaven except through me. That's important. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, which means that at some point, all people, all of us, we must at some point repent or turn from wrong ways that we used to live. At some point, we must turn from the wrong ideas we once held or believed and the wrong life we previously lived and instead submit to, I understand it now. Jesus is the way. And Jesus, I have been wrong, and forgive me for that. And Jesus, I've been good, but I'm a, I'm a good sinner. And I need you to save me. And I need you to give me access and entrance into heaven. It demands at one point we all must be willing to do that. Well, as Jesus makes these statements, he then says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. So amidst of telling them how they can enter into the presence of God, Jesus indicates that a person's experience here in verse 7 of knowing him, he says, is simultaneously experiencing having a knowledge of knowing the Father or God himself. Do you see what he says there in verse 7? He says, you do know him, that is the Father in heaven, and he says, you've also seen him, that is, seen him firsthand, the idea is. Well, again, Philip realizes Thomas's question helped, so let me take a turn. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. So Philip, longing to understand and experience God fully, he asked Jesus there in verse 8 for what we might call a theophany. 
And a theophany is basically a term that speaks of just a time when God reveals himself to people in a very direct way. When God gives a manifestation of himself personally among men. So Philip basically says, Lord, could you show us the Father? Please have the Father reveal himself to us. Lord, that would be enough. If you could just have the Father directly reveal himself to us, that would satisfy us spiritually. So he's saying, please, here's what he's saying, please show us what God's like. Show us exactly what God is like. Have God show himself to us. To which Jesus responds, verse 9, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father. So Jesus says, Philip, no theophany is needed. No revelation of the Father or God is needed because I've already revealed God to you. To see Jesus was to see God firsthand. This is what the Lord is claiming here. God had come in the flesh in the most literal form. That's why the voice of God answers in response in verse 9, have I been with you so long? He says, Have I already been with you so long and then you say you don't know me? In John chapter 1, we saw there, John said that God became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. It tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. That's why Jesus says here in our text in verse 9 there, He who has seen me has seen already the Father or seen God. In other words, the Bible teaches very, very clearly that to see Jesus is to see God because Jesus was God, living as a man. So everything that Jesus did, how he acted, how he spoke, what mattered to him, what didn't matter to him, everything about who Jesus was, was a perfect revelation of what God is. What Jesus was as a man is what God is like because Jesus was God. So if we ever say... I want to know what God is like. God is exactly like Jesus. So as we look at the life of Jesus, we truly see what God is like. Interesting to realize God wants us to know what he's like. God wants to reveal himself to us. He actually came in a human form to live among us and to manifest who he is and what mattered to him and how he behaved and responded to things. And that was seen by seeing Jesus who is God in the flesh. Verse 10 and 11, then he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me, he says, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So Jesus reiterates again, as he said many times already, this truth of the oneness and the union between him and God the Father. Two times he reiterates the same statement. He repeats it for emphasis in verse 10 and 11. I am in the Father, and he says, and the Father is in me. Indicating that Jesus and the Father were intimately and fully in union and united in their thoughts in their words, in their works, in their purpose, in their action, Jesus never acted independent of his Father in heaven. They always functioned in perfect harmony. Jesus never did anything independent of his Father's involvement. Jesus spoke what the Father wanted him to say. He says in verse 10 there, the words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority as a man, but the Father who's in me, he says, 
is the one doing these works. So when Jesus spoke, it was basically God speaking in the first person. God was speaking through Jesus directly, which means that Jesus' words are divine and should be believed upon in that manner. They should be related to in that manner. To hear from Jesus, listen, is to hear from God. When Jesus speaks, we're reading the words of Jesus, this is God speaking directly in the first person. To hear from Jesus is to hear from God. If you want to hear the voice of God, here's the, here's the key. You need to enter into a relationship with Jesus. And you need to listen to the words of Jesus because the words of Jesus were the words of God. That's why Jesus says there in verse 11, listen, believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. At least he says, believe for the work's sake. What he's trying to say there is even if you don't believe my own testimony or my words, though you should, at least believe for the sakes of the miracles that I've shown you that reveal that God is working through me. And if you look at the life of Jesus and the life of, the, uh, of, of the, the miracles and works God did all throughout the Old Testament Israel's history, you realize that the way that Jesus did his works, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, so much of how Jesus acted and what he did and the miracles were worked in a way to identify that he was God. So there would be no confusion on the matter. Now let me say this to you this morning in relation to these things. Jesus, as I said at the beginning, is offering help for a troubled heart. For a troubled heart. And you notice in this short section of verses, if you didn't, five times Jesus repeats a word. It's this word. Believe. 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 Five times Jesus emphasized that because perhaps the voice of the Lord would say to you today if something is troubling your heart, don't try and answer all the questions. Don't try to figure it out or fix it all yourself. Perhaps he is saying, just, just believe. Heaven's real. Heaven is real. Jesus is coming again. And you know the way. So just believe, and if you do, in time, everything, it will be okay. Amen?